Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve you with information that empowers you so you can make better financial decisions in your life. And if you enjoy our podcast, I hope you'll subscribe to it or follow it wherever you listen or watch. Today, we have a train wreck with saving in our country, particularly with people in Gen X. The oldest Gen Xers are 59 this year. They just have had more trouble saving money than any prior generation in the modern era. So what can you do about it if I'm talking to you, if you're in your 50s and you just have not been able because of what's going on in your life to save money? I'm going to talk about the choices, the circumstances that you're going to have to face, and it's not necessarily a disaster, as the headline writers would say. And something that has been a disaster is affordability of homes in the United States. I mean, out of control. And there are a number of fast-growing states that housing prices have gone up more than 50% in the last five years. Great for the people who own those houses, terrible for anybody wanting to buy one. I'm going to talk about some of the solutions that can chip away at the pricing problem, but they're things that a lot of people have trouble getting comfortable with. We'll talk about that later. So yeah, it's just absolutely a fact that a lot of people who are in Gen X, have not been able to save money. They are the bleeding edge, age-wise, of people who came of age in the first group of people to come of age, where people didn't work for a single employer for a long time, and the first full generation where pensions were totally rare. I mean, today... Almost no one goes to work in a job that comes with a pension, a payment that you receive the rest of your life just for years of working somewhere. So it is a rough road in this adjustment. The generations coming behind X, they never ever heard of a pension. They have actually been in a position to be better at saving for the future, saving in Roth IRAs, saving in 401ks. In fact, Gen X came of age in a time when 401ks were not as common and Roth IRAs were not really a useful vehicle. So it is what it is. And you may be where you are in your, particularly if you're in your late 50s and you're staring down your 60s and you're like, how am I ever going to retire? And the reality is you do what you can in the practical walls of your own financial life. And one of the things you can do is in the years that you have till your intended retirement, 
do what you can saving money now. Truthfully, it doesn't have the impact of saving money at a younger age where it can compound on itself, but it's still money that builds cushion in your life. Second thing you're going to have to do is if your health allows, you're going to have to work longer. You know, the whole concept of retirement is only 150 years old in the world anyway. People used to just work till they couldn't or till they died. And retirement and time of leisure is really cool. But not everybody's able to do it. And a lot of Gen Xers are going to have to work. And that work may be at some point in your 60s where it becomes, there's all these weird terms people are banding about. I think the most recent I saw was something called flex tireman or something. The idea that you work part-time, which supplements your income and means there's less years that the money you've been able to save plus social security is what you have to depend on. When you're younger and healthier, you want to get those hours in and get that money and build that cushion in your life. At the same time that you reduce what you have to spend out of your savings, you're creating money what you're earning. And the more years you're working full-time in your 60s, the more money you have to build up savings. And then when you do decide to scale down and work part-time, you're reducing the amount of that money you've saved you have to draw on. Because third of people in retirement live just on Social Security, and they'll tell you, that's not an easy life. And that's why working longer is the likely way that you're going to smooth out what you've not been able to do younger in your life. And one other thing, I saw a report recently that parents in this generation are very heavily subsidizing the lives of their adult children. I know your heart makes you want to do this, but if you have not been able to save for your own retirement, and you're spending money on your adult children, and you're in your 50s, are your adult children that you're giving money to now, are they going to be able to financially support you later in your life, in your 70s, 80s, whatever? The answer is almost certainly no. So as much as you want to help out your adult children, if you have not been able to fund your own retirement, put money aside for your own life, you just can't afford to help out your adult children. That's cold, isn't it, of me? It's true, though. What did your dad used to say? <laughs> one parent can take care of 10 children, but 10 children cannot take care of one parent. Yeah, you got to prepare. Shauna in Alaska says, I accepted a very large relocation bonus and sign-on bonus, $30,000 and $7,500 in 2022 when I accepted a hospital job. I should have done more research into the penalties of accepting such a large sum because the job ended up being detrimental to my life and I quit the position in early 23. Because I broke the contract, I was required to pay them back the net sum given to me plus the taxes out of my own pocket. I ended up paying $8,000 out of my savings to pay the company the taxes that were taken. I just thought I had to pay them what they paid me, $27,000. Nope. My coworker also quit, but she left in the same tax year, so she only needed to pay the net. 
but not without some mildly intimidating and slightly harassing emails from corporate. I guess my question is, what should I have done to avoid this whole mess in the first place? Shauna, I am really sorry. And we have had so many wrinkles on your question. We've had, uh, most of them have involved people who signed up with a company and they were put through a training program for whatever skill it was they were learning. And they didn't stay in the program or the program, uh, they didn't pass the program, whatever it was. And then they got billed back for all the free training they received. And that's the most common scenario. Yours is only the second I recall that we've had about these sign-on bonuses. But these contracts are very punitive when you sign up for any kind of sign-on bonus. And there will be a term a period, a term that you have to serve. Uh, could be two years, three years, don't know what yours was for the sign-up bonus. And so what I've recommended in the prior situations with the training is no, you've got to stay for the period of time required, or you're going to have to face a bill shock of a big bill. In your case, it sounds like you saved the bonus, but weren't prepared for the tax. And that is an unusual situation. But it is true that any time you get a sign-on bonus, it's going to come with, with the carrot, it's going to come with an ugly stick if you can't stay for the period of time. And in this case, there's nothing I can say or do to help you. What I can tell you is you have helped other people by this coming up again about sign-on bonuses, relocation bonuses, and quote-unquote free training programs that all of them come with ugly strings attached. He in New Jersey says, is the affordable connectivity program real? And if so, how come I haven't heard about this government discount program on your show? Is this a legit program to apply for to reduce my monthly home internet bill? It actually has come up before. And in my TV work, I've done a story on this, that the federal government has subsidy programs for cell phone service and for home internet service for people who qualify with, let me see if I remember the circumstances, disability, certain who are eligible for certain federal programs or meet income eligibility requirements where you can get ultra low cost or even free cell phone service up to a point and you can get the ultra cheap home internet connection. And this is a subsidy from your fellow taxpayers paid to the service provider through the federal programs that allow for the free or cheap cell phone and the deeply reduced price home internet. And you can see that at ftc.gov slash ACP. FCC. FCC, sorry. Federal Communications Commission. FCC.gov slash ACP. Benjamin in Washington says, I have often heard Clark talk about frequently renting cars and his procedure to photograph the car, set up his toll device, etc. Can I ask if he has any safety-related checks that he performed on the car? I recently rented from a major company and drove for several days before noticing the tires were mostly bald. 
The car had 46,000 miles on it and probably the original tires. Friends tell me that since COVID, cars have been kept longer and are often in poorer condition. A few, few friends told me they routinely check the tires, but most say they don't. So here's my rule on the tires, because I had this happen to me. And uh, fortunately, I did not have a blowout or anything in old, bald tires. But now when I get in a rental car, if it has 40,000 miles or more on it, I get out and put the flashlight on on my cell phone and look at the tires. I should probably do that every car I rent, but I've started to notice that the vehicle vehicle rental fleet that was so ancient in 21 and 22, um, last year I was, I was getting some actual new cars again or newer cars at the rental car lot where I had been getting, I mean, really ancient rental cars. And the rental car companies were never equipped to deal with having a car in their fleet that would hit more than 30,000 miles on it. And now routinely they have cars that old and they're not set up to maintain them properly. That's why I've said, I don't want you buying a car from a rental car company fleet that's older because it's been just trash treated so terribly that you're almost certainly buying trouble from a poorly maintained car. The tires, I do reactively, not proactively, but maybe I should rethink that. I'm already out there shooting a video of the outside of the car before I leave the rental plaza. And I now have, because of something that happened to me in Michigan with a car rental, do you remember what happened to me in Michigan? No. I rented a car and one side of it had been in a, meaningful accident had like sideswiped and and one of the fenders was all bent in and so i get to the bunker where they have the thing that keeps you from driving out till they check that you're not stealing the car and i said i need you to note cuz there's nothing in the paperwork showing all this damage so i get her to write it all down and she puts her name and i leave and then i return the car and i then get a call from from the claims loss people, whatever, saying that uh, there's $15,000 damage to the rental car. And I said, well, I have the note here showing what the damage was going out. He said, well, that note doesn't account for that much damage. We think you wrecked the car. I went through so much. So now when I get in a rental car and it's got significant body damage to it, I go back and I got a new mm-hmm. rental car. I mean, it's war mm. with the car rental companies. One other thing you should know about the rental car companies is they're now billing people extensive amounts for damage inside the car. So let's say somebody was smoking illegally in a car rental and they illegally against the contract. It's not <laughs> illegal smoking a car. Well, some things might be. Yeah. Well, okay. That's true. <laughs> I'm talking about six. Right. All right. So somebody burns a hole in the upholstery. Um, you want to take a clear picture of it in addition to having video, and it'll be time-stamped because later they may try to charge you to reupholster the entire car. So it is, I mean, it really is a fight mm. with the car rental companies now because it's not a, um, 
shared monopoly, there's three major companies. Usually by the time you get a third, they stop treating customers so badly. But it is an industry that has real customer no service issues. You know what freaks me out? And I'm seeing it less and less, thank goodness. When you drive out of one of those and they have the one-way spikes. Oh, you don't like the one-way spikes? driving over. It just Why? freaks me out. I don't know. Because you're them. such a rule I'm follower. I'm so terrified that it's going to, like, I'll, somehow the car will back up and it'll spike the tires. I don't know. I just really don't like those. I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm alone. Yeah, I don't know that that's... quirks. Maybe that's a common fear. It's not no, something I it's fear. It's just me. <laughs> yeah, but all those things, I mean, the spikes weren't enough. Now they've got those big barriers that mm-hmm. come up. I prefer that to the Because spikes. of all the car theft rings. Mm-hmm. So... It's a, the car rental industry is, it's a weird industry too. You show up, you hand some stranger your driver's license and credit card, and then they let you drive off in a $50,000 car. Seriously? I mean, just with those two things, that's weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And my son, who's a pilot, I think I mentioned this before. He's 18. He can fly a a multi-million dollar airplane around. And he's not allowed to rent a car because he's 18. So he'll land somewhere and he has to take an Uber or Lyft because he can't drive a car, a rental car. Oh, well. He'll eventually be old enough to do that. Mm -hmm. But he'll be flying for a commercial airline before he can rent a car. Wow. Coming up ahead, we're going to talk about, just we talked about cars. Now we're going to talk about the biggest expense in your life, housing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we're going to talk about flexibility and how we do housing in the country. And you said, wait a second, you got a question you want to tee up to me to start with to talk about this. Yeah, you brought this topic up and I thought Sharon in Illinois, she wrote in with this question. I thought it'd be perfect to lead into to your segment here. My husband and I would love to build a home, but the cost is so high. What are your thoughts on modular homes? I'm not talking about manufactured or mobile homes. These are homes that are stick built like a normal home, but are built mainly in a factory and put together on site. Are they a good value? And how do I find a quality modular home builder? So this is a crazy thing because modular manufacturing has caught on, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, where it's been hard to have enough good build days And so it's how it's done so commonly in a lot of Northern Europe, Canada, they do this. I think in Iceland, they do this as well. Trying to remember. Anyway, that you build the components of a house in a factory, perfect weather indoors every day of the year. They're able to build with an efficiency and a speed that's so much better and cheaper that you reduce the time of construction by a great amount. The quality of construction is generally much higher when you build a home in components. And so you are able to build it more efficiently, cheaper, and faster building in a factory. And so the economics are clear, but culturally, 
this has not caught on in the United States. And most promising builders that build this way, that they build in components in a factory, have eventually run out of money. They've gone bust. And it is, I believe, completely cultural. Builders have built the way they built for so long that the industry has not moved what the logical economics would say it should move. Plus, the other thing you face, Sharon, is a lot of local governments through their zoning policies have looked at component-built homes with hostility, even though the homes are built better and they're much more efficient, again, time and cost, and the cost savings aren't like 50%. Cost savings, because you still have to do site work, you still have to do utilities, you have to bring that stuff in, and you can pre-plumb a room. You can pre-wire the electricity. You can do all those things in the factory, and then you've got transportation costs. You load them in components on a flatbed. You have a crane at the build site, and you lift the components in place. This has really worked with hotels. Hotel industry has been doing this more than anybody else, and it's worked some with apartments. It has only happened in fits and starts with single-family homes. Now, to your statement that you're not talking about um, manufactured homes, mobile homes, there's no reason that mobile homes or manufactured homes couldn't be of the quality of what these component builds are. They just have not been historically. But it is a way to make housing more affordable in the United States. And it's just a shame we haven't gotten there. But the truth, we can do things, many things, that would make housing more affordable in the U.S. We just haven't been able to make those cultural shifts that would make it happen. You've been talking about those, the factory homes. The entire, from the moment you met me mm-hmm. in the 1990s, yeah. you've heard me talk about this. It's pretty cool. It's like, uh, there's a guy I know who just turned 101, mm-hmm. who's been talking about how the solution to the energy problems of the world is nuclear fusion. I still remember being a little kid, the man's name is Alec, hearing Alec talk about nuclear fusion a lifetime ago, he was talking about it. And maybe someday that will be what we do. And maybe someday I'll be that person who talked forever about building efficient housing. And we actually do it. It's very cool to go on YouTube and watch some of the videos of these homes being built in the factories and then moved into site and how nice they are. And somebody's going to figure this stuff out because efficiency is needed so that we can build affordable housing. And there's something I think we talked about recently, and I only do this on TV, about how 28% of American households are one-person households. No, I don't think you did that on the podcast. I didn't do that on the podcast. And so we have not really thought through, as an industry in housing, how to efficiently house people who are in that situation. I remember I was visiting my uh, middle child, Steffi, and I stayed at a residence inn by Marriott. You know I would have done this. I walk off the room, you know, I, I take my shoes off and each step's like a foot, and I walk off all the dimensions and I'm like, this would be perfect 
for single resident housing. It was 420 square feet, had a little kitchen in it, had a little miniature living room, bedroom, bathroom. It was efficient use of space. I mean, we can do these things. So, so many of these things happen in the hotel industry. And then other people, because housing's so segmented in uh, multifamily housing, single family, nobody really thinks about how to use those efficiencies to deal with the affordability issues we have in the country on housing. Can you tell it's an obsession of mine? No, I love it. Okay, Jeffrey in New Jersey says, I live in a neighborhood in New Jersey where the homes were built by one builder in the mid-1980s. Unfortunately, two of my neighbors have had to replace their main water service line during the six years I have lived here. Polybutylene pipe. Each situation required a full line replacement at a cost of around $10,000. Most recently, my neighbor was told that the lines in the neighborhood were originally installed with cheap materials and would probably continue to fail. My home insurance company has been fabulous, but does not provide service and waterline riders. Does it make sense to purchase a service line warranty? And how would you find a reputable company? If not, how would you plan for this sort of expense? An unlimited coverage plan through one company would cost me around $15 a month, but online reviews are mixed. I am also padding my emergency fund because my roof and air handler are both original to the house and they will need to be replaced soon. So this was a scandal uh, two generations ago with polybutylene pipe and the manufacturers of it knew it would not work, but it was cheap and builders building mass production homes wanted to uh, get those water service lines put in as cheap as they could. And polybutylene was uh, really easy. It was really flexible pipe, easy to install. And I'm stunned that your polybutylene pipe is still working from 40 years ago because most people's water lines, they always say about polybutylene that uh, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it fails. So the insurance that people sell you for the water line tend to be uh, not any good because the reality is the 15 a month that you'd be paying is not enough to cover the risk to them on 40-year-old polybutylene pipe. So there's got to be every exception possible, which is why you read these mixed reviews. A lot of people replace the water line proactively if they know they're in a neighborhood with polybutylene pipe because you face three problems if you don't. One, you may end up with a gigantic water bill from your water provider, city, county, private, for the water that ends up leaking from a deteriorating polybutylene pipe. Two, you may be out of water for a meaningful period of time while you're able to do an emergency replacement. And so three, it's best to budget for it and my belief, proactively replace it. Because when you go to sell your home, a good inspector is going to say, oh, I think this home has polybutylene pipe. It may kill a sale for good money for your home. So I would rather see you budget and replace because, again, as your neighbors experienced, really it's a question of when, not if, that line's going to go. CJ in Alaska says, I'm thinking of buying a condo out of state. What do you think of using Schwab as a mortgage lender? Is there any downside? Using Schwab as a mortgage lender is something that has worked well for Schwab account holders 
You've done Schwab mortgage before? I did do one. Um, yep. And you got a quarter point lower mm-hmm. by being an account holder. I don't recall ever hearing complaints about using Schwab as a mortgage lender. I do have a preference when you're buying real estate to use a local mortgage lender just because they're more aware of what goes on in the area. They're more accountable to you. But Schwab in the mortgage area has had a good reputation. And again, you do have a good shot that the costs will be lower. What I'd like for you to do, get a quote from Schwab on doing a loan on that purchase and then get quotes from lenders in the out-of-state area where you're buying the home. And you may even find that when you say, well, you know, I have this offer from Schwab at, you know, half a point or zero points or whatever, and these closing costs and this rate, and they may well match it to get your business. You know, with mortgage lending, when people are buying a home, most people only get a quote from a single mortgage lender, and that's to your detriment. Because shopping around will definitely pay. And right now, mortgage brokers, they're twiddling their thumbs. The housing market has slowed down so much that they need your business. And so they're willing to cut margins to get your business. And that's why you put mortgage lenders in competition with each other. And I want to thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. And know that we're here to serve you with advice and information that helps you do what? Save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off.